Welcome lords and ladies and squires and mistresses to Wisecracks, show me the meaning, I am your master of ceremonies for today, welcome to Camelot, this is Wisecracks, show me the meaning. Show me thy meaning and honor, for that is what a, a knight, that is why a knight does what he does. Uh, are you a knight, dear sir? We have assembled the round table of Liverpool. Yes! <laughs> yes. Go Beatles! Fuckin Abbey Road, my fucking, favorite album, what's yours? You're fucking scouser, mate! Fucking right! Okay, uh, I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me The Meaning crew. We got Ryan Haley. What up, film fans? <laughs> and we got Raymond Kramer. Uh, hi, everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> this one is off to a ripping start. And we have gotten many, 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 many requests for us to talk about The Green Knight. So we are going to be talking about The Green Knight, written and directed by one of my personal favorite contemporary American filmmakers. I'm going to call him a young filmmaker, David Lowry. He's also a phenomenal editor. I believe he edited Upstream Color. Is that right? He did. Yeah. Did he do Primer as well? The other Shane Carruth film? Or was that no. all Shane? No, no. Okay, just Shane, Upstream Shane Color. Shane Carruth edited Primer. Uh, yeah, but so David Lowry, um, it's starring Dev... Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton's in there, Ralph Innocent's in there, etc., etc. Um, Ralph Einson. Einson? Yeah. Yeah, you, you fucking, the fucking, I don't know, my accent. From, from his from his beautiful baritone voice, he pronounces it Einson, but it does look like innocent. Yeah, okay, Ralph, let me do that one over again. Ralph Einson's in this film, everybody. Did you know that? Wow, um, he's oh, my no favorite. Idea. He's my favorite. So we're going to be talking about this Arthurian legend, and so I guess what we'll do, let's do this. First of all, first impressions of seeing the film, I imagine we've all only seen it one time each unless somebody watched it multiple times. But um, also, are you familiar with this story? Are you familiar with the Arthurian legends and Camelot and what's your history with Sword in the Stone and other adaptations? Let's talk a little bit about that and then let's talk about the film. Let's start with Raymond. Uh, sure. I read uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in uh, high school in an English class, which I, I think is where a lot of folks read it. I think David Lowry even said that he he read it uh, at first in his freshman year of, uh, of college. Um, and uh, I liked it then without really a clear sense of how to respond to it or how to interpret it. And I, I reread it in preparation for the podcast today. And uh, yeah, it was it was like a, a whole new experience reading it this time around. Um, I really, really love this movie. Like you, Austin, I think David Lowry is one of uh, one of our finest contemporary filmmakers. Um, he's he's carving out a really interesting niche for himself, uh, sort of straddling the line, doing some work with Disney here and there, doing some more accessible stuff that, like The Old Man and the Gun, which I watched this morning, uh, and then doing stuff more uh, more on the meditative side of things like this and uh, A Ghost Story, which is one of my favorite movies, just period. Um, so I, uh, I really, really love his work. Uh, I'm eager to talk about this film today, and uh, I'm eager to talk about the, uh, the history and the, the context of the story as well, because it's a, a beautifully written uh, it, poem, but it's not really, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't scan, or it scans like a poem technically, but it doesn't read like a poem. It's not rhyming every, uh, every couplet here and there. So if you haven't read this, I, I highly recommend it. You, you can read it in just a couple hours. It's, uh, it's really quick and um, a, a really, uh, really interesting and fun read. It's much more in the vein of like the Homeric um, uh, epics or of like the Roman epics. It's it's a it's a it's a tale, if you will, rather than just simply simply a poem. I guess yeah, and I say. think there's some some very interesting and informative differences between the text and the film that maybe we'll get into. Cool, cool, cool. All right, Ryan, what about you, brother? Um, so I was not familiar with the poem or story at all. I guess my only familiarity with this whole thing is, uh, Disney's Sword in the Stone cartoon and yep. A Kid in King Arthur Court. Oh yeah. Uh, what about, what about First Night? When I was a kid. Did you ever see First Night with Sean Connery and Richard Gere? And was it Juliette Binoche that's in that? No, I didn't. Um, but, uh. And I'm talking about the kid in King Arthur's court that was with the kid from Rookie of the Year yes! in the early 90s. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, I digress. So I have I've don't really know much about it. I know a bunch, bunch of people that I know had read it in college and stuff. I guess I didn't take those courses. But but and and usually these aren't the movies I kind of gravitate to to. So I was kind of like okay. 
We're going to see the Green Knight. It, it almost was like, in a weird way, this chore I had built up in my mind. But I really like this movie a lot. Like, I was I was kind of enraptured the whole time watching it. It was a beautiful movie. I'm kind of surprised it exists because it is a pretty big budget, you know, kind of art house, uh, 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 I don't know, not super mainstream movie that seemed like it cost a lot of money, basically. Um, $15 million. So it, it looks okay. it looks a lot bigger. I mean, he got every uh, every dollar on the screen. But uh, apologies, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so I was kind of waffling maybe towards the beginning about being like, like uh, SS Coty in the chat says this movie is incredible, is unbelievably pretentious, <laughs> and that did cross my mind. It's in the early on. I'm like, all right, you know, is is this basically a, a very indulgent? you know, student film, uh, uh, made by, you know, I, I had never seen a David Lowry movie either, by the way. So I know oh, wow. you guys say that you guys love him. Yeah. And when I'm looking at every movie of his, I've heard of, but I just haven't seen, it. I haven't seen Ain't This Body Saints. I haven't seen a ghost story, you know, uh, uh, and a ghost story, if, if I'm not wrong, Loved it. was, uh, was like beat up by the critics and stuff when it came out. Right. Yeah, but you, not necessarily, but, or, or maybe it was a huge bomb or something. Either way, like, like I, I this movie made me want to go see this guy's other stuff. Cool. Cause clearly he's had a crazy career. His IMDB is insane for you, what you called a young director. He has like 20 producing credits, 27 directing mm-hmm. credits, 23 writing credits, 14 cinematography credits. And like you said, and then 36 editing credits. Like yeah. he's been around the block. And I guess the only other movie I've seen of his is the Pete's dragon remake, yeah. which I actually, Th- was pleasantly surprised yeah, at same, and how much I same. I kind of enjoyed that movie. Uh, uh, even though it's like, why why make that movie? Anyway, long story short, I thought this movie was cool, and I um, maybe dragged a little bit in the in the middle, but it, it was so pretty to look at. I didn't give a shit. This movie was fun, and and then the, the you always got to go out with a bang with your movies, and I think that, that the very last line of this movie with the green eye going, "All right, now off with your head." Spoilers. Oh, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Hey, listen, this podcast is all spoilers all the time, so... This is one big spoiler. So spoilers for a uh, 4,000-year-old poem. (laughs) Yeah, it's like going to see Titanic. Well, closer to like 1,400. Yeah. That's the part of the movie I would like to get y'all's meaning of, you know, the most, is the very, very end of the movie. What is... What are we supposed to take away from the film, and then what is... How do you interpret that line? And anyway... Awesome. What did you think about the film? I really love your thoughts, Ryan. Yeah, so David Lowry's been one of my favorite filmmakers ever since Ain't Them Body Saints came out, um, which I thought was like a sort of nod, homage almost to early Malick, um, which which is, you know, Days of Heaven yeah, is one of my like favorite Badlands, films of all time. Yeah. And then, of course, Badlands is just one of the greatest films I think ever made. And so it was very similar in that vein, almost a bit derivative even. But I kind of loved it so much that I was I was kind of excusing the fact that you could see uh, Malick's fingerprints all over it. As they say, great artists steal, right? Um, and then I loved a ghost story. So I came into this with kind of a lot of expectation and hope and things like that. And here's the problem. I was exhausted last night when I watched this film. And I think I was mentally fatigued. And it was one of those things where I was watching it and I was going, this is fucking fantastic. And it's beautiful. And it's gorgeous. But I'm really tired. And I want to watch this again. I like. I really wish I would have watched it in the theater. Like that's my only thing. Like I'm almost annoyed at myself that I didn't have the mental capacity to watch it. Now, all that to say, I saw it in the theater. Yeah. See, I wish I could have because I feel like had I watched it on the big screen, I would have been much more alert and engrossed. But I was. My feet were up on the sofa, and I was watching it on my TV, and it was kind of like you know it was a long day, and and it was kind of like I knew that I had to watch it, and so it was also kind of like a. I, I just wasn't in the right frame, and I'm a little annoyed at myself, and I want to watch it again. But I will say this. The thing that I took away from it more than anything is there are frames and there are shots and there are color palettes that I will keep replaying in my mind over and over and over again. Um, Particularly when he gets to the Green Chapel, the yellows and greens that are kind of framing him and then how it kind of switches from that into a sort of more quote-unquote realistic rather than surrealist um, kind of uh, shot. And then some of the shots when they're in King Arthur's court, it wasn't as grandiose of a set, but then the framing was so much like a painting that I thought that there was some beautiful things that came from that with the lighting and um, so I think it was absolutely wonderfully composed visually and then I think in terms of this being a retelling of um, you know stories from the Middle Ages 
is something that's really interesting because there's so many interesting religious themes, um, mythical themes. There's so much to dig into here. Uh, who is the Green Knight? Why is the Green Knight green? What's the deal with the plants? Is this a nod to the green man historically? Is it Satan? Is it Christ? There's all kinds of different interpretations, some of them conflicting. So there's so much. What is this? Is this a tale of bravery, love, um, honor? Is this uh, is this a, a warning? Is this, you know, um, some sort of tale of chivalry? I mean, it's called a chivalrous romance or chivalric romance, right? So there's so much here that I feel like we could talk about it. It's a Christmas way. story. And it's a fucking Christmas story on top of that, right? So what the fuck? There's so much to do. So I'm going to go into a quick recap here. But before we do that, I got to give um, some shout outs here, some quick shout outs to some new stuff. We got some new merch, folks. New merch. So we got stickers. And uh, if you want, you can go check those out. You can go to wisecrack.store. So you can check that madness out. We got our podcast logos for Culture Binge, um, obviously for Show Me the Meaning, and for the Squanch. So head over to wisecrack.store. You can check that out. And we got t-shirts coming soon, and the t-shirts are pretty sick. I can't wait to get a new t-shirt myself. So go check that madness out. Also, give us a follow over on Twitter. It is SMTM underscore P-O-D. That's SMTM underscore P-O-D. Also, shouts to Chunky Rivera, who just said Raymond is hot. Let's get into the recap. Uh, so we're going to go into the recap real here, quick here. All right. So I, I is it Gawain, Gawain, however the hell you say his name? Gawain, I'm going to say, attends a feast at his uncle King Arthur's court. The king invites Gawain to sit beside him, and the two discuss what it means to be great. At this same time, Gawain's mother is performing a magic ritual elsewhere. Now, at this time, the Green Knight enters the King's Court, lays down a challenge, and basically says any knight who is able to land a blow on him will win his Green Axe. However, one year later, this knight must meet the Green Knight at the Green Chapel so that he can return the favor with the exact same blow. Now, only Gawain stands up to accept the challenge. Now, the Green Knight, oddly enough, does not fight back, but instead lowers his head, and Gawain beheads him. Then moments later, the Green Knight stands up, picks up his head pretty nonchalantly, then reminds Gawain of the deal and exits. Then we fast forward to a two quick year later. One year later, Gawain sets out to the Green Chapel to fulfill his end of the bargain. Gawain's ambushed in the forest, his axe is stolen, but then he eventually comes across an abandoned cabin when, where he's awakened when he's sleeping by the ghost of Winifred who asks him to fetch her head from a nearby spring. He goes and gets the head, then he gets his axe back, so then he continues on his way. Then he reaches a castle near the Green Chapel. This castle's run by a lord and the lord's mistress who's making sexual advances at him. Is this nods to the Joseph story from the Old Testament? I don't know. Tell us what you think in the chat. She makes these sexual advances. Uh, He's rebuffing them, but then one morning Gawain gives in to her advances in exchange for the green girdle, where he ejaculates all over it, and I had somebody on Twitter asking me, what's the deal with all the cum? So I guess we can talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, let's talk about the cum. Fleeing from the castle, and he finally reaches the green chapel. Now, when the green knight finally awakens from his little slumber, Gawain must decide whether he runs away in fear, or does he follow through with his end of the bargain, and if he lets the green knight return the blow and chop his head off. At this time, though, Gawain has this vision of fleeing and returning home, of becoming king, then becoming a disgraced king, and then ultimately losing his head one day. Then he awakens from this vision, he removes the girdle, and says that he is ready to accept his end of the deal. The Green Knight then praises him for his bravery, and then cheekily runs his finger across Gawain's throat, saying, Now, off with your head. End of film. Oh, but wait, there's a post-credit scene. What is this, a fucking Marvel film? And in the post-credit scene, there's a young girl who finds a king's crown and places it on her head. What could this possibly mean? I have no clue, but we're going to talk about it on the other side of a quick little ad. Got to give a shout out to Skillshare. Skillshare, you know about them. We talk about them all the time. They're an online learning community. They're sick because you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives where you can explore projects that you're passionate about. That's why Skillshare is so cool because you can unleash your creativity and pursue your passions right from the convenience of your home. And they offer thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics such as iPhone photography, editing, drone filming, classes on improving productivity, video for IG, composition, artivism, etc., 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 etc. So if you want to explore your creativity 
and connect with some cool people, go to Skillshare.com SMTM and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. That's Skillshare.com SMTM and you get a free trial of their premium membership. Skillshare.com SMTM or click the link down in the show notes. All right, so much to talk about here. I guess, Ryan, let's start it off. Let's start at the end. We'll start at the end. What does the Green Knight mean? Now off with your head. Does he stand up and chop off Gawain's head? Or was he cheekily just running his finger across his neck saying, okay, that is my return blow to you. And because of your bravery, you have now passed the test because you've mastered the test and you've been rewarded. What else is going on here? What do you think? What is your interpretation of this ending? And what are people saying on the interwebs too? Well, those were my two interpretations was either you went through all this and yeah, I'm about to chop your head off, you know, but it's Regardless. obviously a, a, a choice to not show that part. So why why wouldn't you show that? Mm. That's, you know, my first interpretation. The second interpretation is what you just said is, oh, that was it. And then he's just kind of making a joke, which uh, is bizarre because we haven't seen the Green Knight joke the whole time. Um, well, but I, what Raymond, what do you think? Yeah. Cause I, I'm, I need you to show me these meanings. Well, no, I was just going to say that, um, while we maybe haven't seen him joke throughout the film at the very beginning of it, he, he says quite pointedly, this is a game. And then Arthur reminds, uh, Gawain of that when he's handing over Excalibur, he says, don't, don't forget that this is just a game. And it's Gawain that takes things too far. He's the one who decides he's going to step up. He's going to impress. He wants to show. He wants to show off. He wants to be bold and brave and courageous and and just nip this thing in the bud. Slices the dude's head off. And the the knight even says at the outset, you know, be it a a strike to the neck or a nick on the cheek or whatever his wording is, you know, the implication being if if you are courageous enough to step up and just be playful with me, then I'm not going to kill you a year from now. I'll just I'll just give you a nick on the cheek in yeah, return. So so if he just bent down and Gawain walked over and just kinda like kicked him with his foot and then they laughed and had like a little chuckle, then that would have been a very different year spent in preparation yeah, for the return. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 doesn't King Arthur who which by the way, you've already shown me some meeting Austin, because I'm an idiot, and I went went the whole movie not even realizing that that was King Arthur. <laughs> yeah, fucking, it's Arthur, Arthur and Guinevere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Anyway, um, uh, but when but doesn't he say the line about hey, this is just a game after he's already decapitated the Green Knight? You know, no, like, isn't it when Gawain is stepping into the circle? He he, he takes Excalibur and he steps up yeah. to uh steps up to the knight okay. because Maybe after he slices his head off the only thing it cuts to arthur and guinevere's reactions who very clearly perceive this as like a moral failure on or you know maybe i'm projecting or that's how i interpreted the scene but arthur and guinevere's reactions to it are like ah, oh, he fucked up you know mm. um but there's also the fact that we see morgan lefay summoning the green knight at the moment of, at the same time that Arthur is going around and uh, giving his sort of monologue around the table there, um, it's not until the end of the book that you find out that Morgan Le Fay was summoned, or was the one who was responsible for, for sending the Green Knight. And also in the movie, this is a kind of a complicating factor, Morgan Le Fay is cast as Gawain's mother, which is not consistent with any Arthurian lore. So the other thing to add to this is that in addition to it being a game in the hopes of like teaching Gawain a lesson, it's kind of being motivated by his mom whose couch he's crashing on. <laughs> and it's Which like, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah It's yeah. kind of like he, he's, yeah, it's like the, the old timey uh, version of, all right, I need get to out of the house. Need to get off his fucking ass <laughs> and, and yeah, go, get, go get a job and well, become a knight. And, and Arthur is his uncle. So there's some relationship that Arthur has with Gawain's mother as well that they don't really explain too much. But, you know, so there's also there's a family thing here, which I don't know if that is in the original poem. So, no, because in the well, he's he's related to Arthur, at least I think in a lot of interpretations, he's Arthur's nephew. I can't remember okay. if they state that uh, clearly in the poem. But at the end of the poem, he he's still wearing the girdle um, the the knight is about to deal the blow and he flinches similar to the ending of this film 
And then uh, he he does follow through with a strike that only results in a nick on Gawain's neck. And then uh, he tosses the girdle aside and he and the knight have a laugh together. They yeah. weirdly out of nowhere have a conversation about how it's all women's fault. And then they like rattle off a bunch of women from like from mm. Eve through to Bathsheba. It's just it's just mm. a very bizarre turn for it to take, but it's like this very broy moment where the two of them get up and they're like, "See, this was a fun game and now you're a man of honor." And then he he goes back to Camelot and then all the knights of the round table start wearing green sashes as like a tribute to Gawain's uh sort of courage throughout that. Obviously, this ending is very different insofar as it it, it cuts before we see any of that, but also if you if you listen to interviews with David Lowry, he he kind of implies that uh, he he doesn't really know if it would end as happily. Like to him, the most important thing is that Gawain learns this lesson, and that you know, it, with that montage at the end, his options are really like you can return home a dead man either way. You'll either have a head or you won't. But if you don't go through with this, if you're mm. not like a man of courage and a man of honor um, and you don't stand by your word, then what is your life really worth? And so I think he even said explicitly in one interview, he was like, I don't know, I think Gawain gets his head cut off, but it's just like <laughs> what matters is that he commits to it and that is his hero's journey. But, you know, of course he doesn't show that. So in in your mind, he, he doesn't, he, what happens in the book happens. He just leaves and they have a little laugh and... Then he becomes this hero in, with legends in the told about movie, him. I think um, my interpretation, at least when I saw it, was that he was going to let him off with just that little joke. Um, but David mm. David Lowry kind of, like I said, he, he says otherwise in interviews. But I mean, the audience owns this movie as much as David Lowry does. And I, I think if your interpretation of it coming away is that, you know, Gawain grew as a person and and he learned his lesson and he he's now going to be given the gift of an honorable life, then I, I think that's a totally valid interpretation. The, 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 there was a thing that I saw, re, uh, or uh, the, the, the whole ending where he, he his life flashes before his eyes about what would happen, right? We've seen that before, right? In a movie, I think it's In like Last the Temptation of Christ. as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the 25th hour does that. Last Temptation of Christ does that. Hmm. I want to say a recent Rick and Morty episode did that. <laughs> <laughs> and in another recent movie. Anyway, mm. it's a cool. I like the cinematic. The Last Temptation is an interesting right, reference because then it's almost as though he's being sacrificial in continuing to go through with the bravery. Because remember, when Jesus is on the cross, too, he does cry out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And G.K. Chesterton and famously Slavoj Žižek has kind of run with this and said, you know, even for a moment, God Himself becomes an atheist. Right. And so many kind of thinkers have lingered over this moment when Jesus is screaming on the cross. Like, what could that mean? Why are the authors writing it in this way? Like, what is going on? Why would this this man of, quote, like perfect faith and trust all of a sudden have moments of doubt? So there's something interesting about that potentially with Gawain, too, because I know that a lot of thinkers like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and other medievalists, and I actually had a phone conversation with a friend of mine who's a medieval scholar. And we were chatting about some of the figures here, like who is who obviously this is written in a very sort of a period of Christendom. So these allusions are going to be intentional and probably quite heavy at times. And if they do have this conversation about women, everyone talking about from Eve all the way through Bathsheba, there are themes of like sex, sexual temptation, which would then kind of like lead you down a particular path about sticking with kind of like your manhood and bravery and honor and things like that. And then of course, you could potentially think of the green man as being like a serpent in the garden right? The Green Knight is uh, laying down a challenge, like, what are you going to do here? Are you going to um, abuse your power and chop my head off? Are you going to just be playful with me? And then, it, however you take it, then um, are you going to then follow through with your end of the bargain, dealing with the consequences that you've set before yourself? Are you going to see through it to the end? And then will you be rewarded for that patience and bravery or courage? What what have you learned over this course of the year, right? Things like that. So I think there's a lot of stuff that we could kind of chew on here. And then does that mean then that somehow Gawain is on a sort of like messianic journey? Because if he didn't go through with it, if he didn't get his head chopped off, he would have become a disgraced king. And does he bring his kingdom into into war where then his child is ended up you know dying which we see like in the visions right and then does he lose Camelot does Camelot fall because of the consequences of his cowardice right so there's so much to think about here um, in that context as well that has like religious illusions 
and of course political illusions because he's preserving the crown he's the king right so he's protecting camelot i th- i think first off i i think the the implication of that uh, that silent montage, that wonderful montage in the third act there that shows his kind of imagined life from this moment as the kind of, you know, fork in the road. Um, I think the implication is that if he if he doesn't live with honor in this moment, then he he will never live with honor or abide by honor in any way going forward. And that this will like this will taint all of his decisions going forward and he'll he'll never be able to hold himself to uh to that standard of integrity again. Um, But in addition to that, you bring up the question of like Christianity and this, this movie is so steeped in the, that kind of conversation of like, of the sort of encroachment of Christianity onto like pagan land and into pagan cultures. Mm. And, you know, from, from that very uh, first moment in the, or not the very first moment in the film, but uh, the one to which we referred earlier, where Morgan Le Fay is casting the spell and Arthur is kind of giving his speech. Arthur's crown is literally designed to make him look like a religious icon with like the round halo behind his head. And while Morgan is like bone scrying and casting these spells and stuff, a lot of the time they're edited and framed like the pacing is such that they're moving in the same direction. Their bodies are like in the same sort of momentum across the frame at the same pace. And they're, they're like very clearly he's sort of tying these sort of rituals together in a way that I, I I found very interesting. And I think it's, I think it's a very subtle, but um, uh, very much intentional sort of, a visual commentary that he makes throughout the film, even as you get towards the Green Chapel and Gawain is seeing like the Celtic cross that is mm, decaying yes. and being consumed by nature. And there's the, there's all kinds of stuff like that throughout the film, even like the inclusion of St. Winifred uh, in this film, which isn't a part of the text. But if you know anything about uh, like uh, Christian mythology, do you do you know the story of St. Winifred? Um, it, so I'll, I'll try to keep this brief, but I think it is an interesting tangent. So I, I used, I was raised Catholic. I used to be a Catholic youth minister. Um, and I'm still kind of obsessed with, uh, Christian mythology just because so much of it is like extraordinarily ghastly. And a lot of it just amounts to just straight up ghost stories. And, uh, the story of St. Winifred is fucking metal as hell. So she was this, uh, young Welsh woman who was kind of stricken with divine inspiration, at least as I recall, she was going to join a nunnery. And one of her, it was her, I don't know if they were together, I can't remember exactly, but a boyfriend or a suitor of hers came and lopped her head off because he didn't take kindly to the notion of her abstaining from their relationship to give herself to God. And her head falls off her body, and when it hits the ground, it creates this spring and then her, I think it was her uncle or her father went and grabbed the, the head off the ground and replaced it on her body and brought her back to life. So she was canonized a saint as a martyr. And uh, to this day, the, the, like, the well, the St. Winifred's well, I think it was, it, it was called like Holy Well, uh, or it's, it's, in, it's in a place in Wales called Holy Well. And for a while, the, the, the water fountain or the water source was called Holy Head. And uh, to this day, it's still seen as like a, a, a pilgrimage site. It's, you know, it's like the, the Lords of Wales, it's referred to because of the healing waters. And that whole sequence is this great moment of like these two legends sort of crossing paths and Gawain becoming the one who retrieves her head rather than her uncle. And I really, really like the, 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 that notion that Lowry keeps playing with in this movie that like... In, in much the same way that he shows the built environment being overtaken by nature through the presence of the Green Knight, like even when the Green Knight sets his axe down and the grass, grass starts grows, to like yeah. flow out from beyond it. And then, of course, the Green Knight's appearance, which in the book, he's just like really big. He's not a big tree or anything like that. And in this, he's, he looks like an ant. Um, I, I, I do like that kind of implication that as as the built environment whether it is an architectural physical built environment or an ideological environment that is built by man it's going to be subsumed by nature eventually like as much as you know civilization has encroached upon the like the the natural environment when all of that falls when when mythology itself starts to crumble what takes it back over is 
is grass and like the natural rate of decay. And and so I do, I, I think there is something really like really, really beautiful and really complex that he's saying about just even like the nature of storytelling and maybe filmmaking itself that like all of this is temporary and, uh, you know, uh, this this movie shows like the living embodiment of a myth succumbing to a living embodiment of nature. And I just think that's really beautiful. Yeah, there's something interesting. So um, there's lots of, again, debate about who the Green Knight is. And one of the historical references is the figure of the Green Man, who is variously depicted kind of with the face, the mask looking very similar to how it's the Green... It's me, man. The, listen, everybody. <laughs> He's the Green Man. I'm the Green Knight. <laughs> did you did you pregame for this movie the same way you pregame for the podcast, Ryan? Oh yeah, baby. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off, Austin. I, I just had to. T- I just had to claim my throne as the Green Knight. That is nature coming in and bursting in. Um, that is herbal nature asserting its dominance um, into the techno waves of uh, of this podcast. But yeah, so you've got the Green Man who is kind of like nature, right? The embodiment of nature and uh, like. It symbolizes rebirth and growth and fecundity and things like that, right? And fertility. And so there's an interesting discussion going on in the live chat right now. I just want to shout out um, uh, Nicolette and Andrea were talking about um, – so Nicolette says, you know, I thought the religious illusions were telling a myth of Britain and equating nature to paganism. And then um, – uh, Andrea was saying, yeah, like the talking fox. And so I thought also of Antichrist as soon as I saw the talking fox. And one of the things that's interesting is in the modern era, we kind of view um, nature as a place of uh, serenity, a place that is uncorrupted, right? A place that is outside of the hustle and bustle of the city. But in the Middle Ages and in the kind of ancient mythologies, nature was a place of death. It was terrifying. It was scary as fuck, right? And so a film like Antichrist kind of really leans into that view rather than the sort of like modern post-enlightenment view of nature as being a place for like bourgeois fantasies to go and retreat and recline and enjoy like the Walden story or something like that, right? And rather what you get in fucking Antichrist, you get a talking fox that says chaos reigns. Right. And as soon as this fucking fox opened his mouth and started talking, I kind of immediately thought I was like, okay. so I I don't know if that was a direct reference or um, some sort of like intertextual reference to Antichrist. But I was thinking a lot about the role of nature sort of taking over. And that's why I think a lot of scholars have looked at the Green Knight as being potentially a figure that represents like the devil as a tempter, um, a trickster, you might say, which is a very sort of well-worn trope for deities in the ancient and pre-modern world, that there is a trickster god, right? Even in the Old Testament, you see um, God playing the role of the trickster as he's depicted sometimes. So it, it seeped its way into Christianity as Christianity appropriates and adopts a lot of these kind of larger cultural trends and, and, and religious theological trends. So I think there's something here about nature as being powerful, about rebirth, about fertility, right? And then potentially about also signaling death, something that is um, against quote-unquote civilization or like the artificial constructions of humans. And then I think we need to tie that into sex because I think that there's something so important about sex, procreation, rebirth, desire, lust. Um, There's something so important about that where you have the mother figure who's testing. You have him who wakes up in a brothel right? And he's lying about saying that he was at mass. So I think it's important that we understand that he is engaged in a sexual relationship with a quote-unquote commoner, right? Like she's not a lady of the court. Um, She's a commoner and uh, he wakes up in this brothel. So there's again something about maybe illicit sexual activity. And then it's something about like the the, the sexual desire and 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 um, ejaculation that relates to fecundity and that in that sort of when he's being seduced by by the lady and he he um, ejaculates all over the green girdle and then he's able to get it and then he has to remove the girdle at the end. So there's a lot of stuff going on here that I, I'm throwing out a lot of shit I know, but there's so much to kind of to kind of unpack here. So just pick them, pick them and let's start peeling it apart here. On that note, the other the other thing I forgot to mention about the ending of the text is that you you find out that the Green Knight and the the Lord played by Joel Edgerton are actually the same person. Um and the reason that he goes on his like anti-woman rant is because uh throughout the throughout like the third chapter, which is the the longest chapter of the book, uh 
the the lady of the house keeps kind of uh similar to the movie she she keeps um you know trying to seduce Gawain and he keeps rebuffing her advances and it, it is very explicitly like tied into that notion of you know he is in much the same way that he has been sent to uh I don't necessarily know if it's if it's explicitly to spur Gawain towards greatness, but he's he is sent to test Gawain, and then he ends up sending the lady of the house to test Gawain That's in right. turn. And so there's like a handful of puppet masters going down the line here. And as, uh, yeah, as he reveals at the end, he says, you know, like, th- that you... you kept this girdle and uh you only exchange the kisses that were given to you in my household and things like that um so i i I do think there's there there is in that very like misogynist old world view yeah you're right it may they may be explicitly tying the um the the temptation that's associated with like femininity uh to i don't i don't necessarily know that the the book portrays him as like a satanic figure um but i guess i guess in some ways nature is regularly equated to uh yeah well not just the feminine but just like uh freedom and uh you know shamelessness and stuff like you know the the garden of eden designed to be um this sort of uh heavenly respite ends up becoming like an icon of just uh temptation and lust or whatever um so yeah it's i mean that that's definitely something i hadn't i hadn't fully considered at the time but that's a good point i uh uh to me the way i took those themes that you're talking about the the sex and whatnot it's like you know this movie's a glorified coming of age movie right where you know, he, it's the the loss of innocence. You know, it, it's it's stand by me. He, they have to go on this crazy adventure to uh, uh, to uh, to at some point realize, oh, this is what life's about. It's not like you know, he's he's heard all the fairy tales and whatever, or or the the stories of knights his whole life, and he but and here he is older, and he's just you know having casual sex, getting fucked up, and just doesn't care about anything, and and he needs honor. Um, he needs to become. You know what? What uh, these great stories he's he's heard about, and so then he has to go on one big adventure himself. So to to me, that's where like the the sex theme kind of just the the yeah, that's where that comes from. Could we say could we say that this is also about him then overcoming or confronting the temptations that would come once you go into nature, right? Because that's all these stories of Little Red Riding Hood of going out outside of the city walls, going outside of of the comforts of what humans have built with their religious institutions, which are meant to protect and control nature. Not control nature in the sense necessarily of domination, although it could lead in that way, but also just to mitigate the effects of famine and to mitigate the effects of the rains that come. So going out into nature is fucking terrifying because that's where it's free in the bad sense, because it's wild, because it's not regulated and managed and controlled, and you don't know where your meal's gonna come from, and disease is gonna fucking eat you and shit like that. And this is why I think a lot of times the feminine has been associated with nature, right? Like, I'm also thinking now of um, the fucking Darren Aronofsky film, Mother, right? Where you have clearly the the poet, which I think we did like on our first, was that our first episode or second? I think Jared said it was the first one, yeah. It was Yeah, that we ever did. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and so what you've got is you've got the poet, you know, Javier Bardem's character, who is um, the artist, the creator, the one who erects structure. And then you have Jennifer Lawrence, who is this um, fertile, always wearing white and pure, and she's Mother Earth, and she just wants to maintain domesticity, right? And you have these two poles that in various religious and theological interpretations were two forms or expressions of the deity, the divine feminine and the divine masculine, you know? In some religious traditions, it's yin and yang, it's Apollo and Dionysus, it's um, you know, been expressed in various different ways, structure and flow, etc., 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 and so I think that's something that's being played here as well um, with sexual desire being, one, experienced, but then repressed and then potentially overcome or managed or confronted until he gets to the end when he undoes the girdle and then he allows his head to be chopped off, which somebody in the chat, I can't remember who it was, but shouts to you because I can't find it now, but said that it was also about um, the elimination of ego, 
right? Which was setting himself aside for the larger cause. And I think there's a lot to that that we could consider and as well. I also think that the a lot of the film's mission is to, in consideration of all of that, uh, to kind of subvert the sort of, uh, you know, like the the repression of this the era in which this was written is kind of like it's inevitable. You know, it's it's kind of like baked into the cake a little bit. And I do I do like that. It seems as though David Lowry is kind of turning that on its head a little bit and examining that in unique ways. Um, sorry, I'm I'm just I'm looking for uh, uh, who contributed that. Ryan, what do you think? What do I think about what you just said? Um, no, just like uh, the the stuff overall. Um. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> My answer is yes. No, it's, I, I think there's... His, there's his like... answer is he just took a bong rip and he kind of zoned out for a second. No, that's, I did not. No, I, I, I take bong rips for all of these podcasts. I just distracted myself because I was trying to find uh, to whom we should attribute that really thoughtful uh, contribution to the chat. Yeah, his mind wandered. <laughs> yeah, that, that one's on me. I got I to gotta take that one. <laughs> Through osmosis, he got a little faded. Um, so, so... Do we think then that this is a morality tale, right? Like, is that essentially not not in just the Arthurian form, which clearly it would be David Lowry? And if so, is David Lowry trying to subvert a lot of these more um, kind of old fashioned tales? I mean, I, I hesitate to use the term, but I guess we could patriarchal stories um, and that he's kind of offering us something else, which is also what I mentioned, you know, that there is a post credit scene where a young girl finds the king's crown and places it on her head. So is there something also about us dealing with the um, established power relations of, of kind of sexual difference? For, for, for me, what, uh, the question you just uh, posed to us, is it a morality tale, was, was what I meant uh, 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 when I really wanted to investigate the final line of the movie, because to me, it would be really cool if he actually did just go, oh, and off with your head, and then he, he literally see yeah, him get his head it. cut off. Yeah. So then, the, what is the lesson there that that don't try to show off, or else you know, here's the the consequences, or you know, nature's going to beat your ass, basically, um, or uh, you've been off more than you can chew. It's like a super cynical ending, or is it kind of how Raymond had phrased it that it's like and. This was a basically a big test, you know, and now uh, go go on and and live this fruitful life, uh, and the fact that they the fact that they cut before you really know, even though I guess the consensus is is that he does that's it. It's just you know uh, he just hits it with his finger. Um, I think that the, that it, it is leaving it to a little open to interpretation about you know uh, and and whatnot, and so yeah, like like I I liked. The just epic nature of the the whole presentation of the story, and apparently, I, I think that this movie does work way better if you have read the stuff. Apparently, because it, in terms of grasping the, uh, the the narrative more, because I, I certainly was just kind of left absorbing this different time and place that they were putting me in into the movie, and way less at the end going, okay, now let's dissect what all that meant. Is kind of how it, 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 that was less of my enjoyment of the movie going. Wow, okay, I'm really like on board with it, or uh, knowing exactly what's going on in given moment. They're literally on giants for like two minutes. All of a sudden, and you're like, well, th- I guess that matter. You know, didn't really matter. That was just how he got somewhere, but. Where did giants come from? Now they're gone. And there's this amazing tracking shot when he first leaves Camelot and he's just walking for a minute. And I'm thinking of like the Turin horse, right? And it's just him on this horse with these kids Turin behind again, him. And he's baby. just, I'm like, yeah, come on. Yeah, I, your, you know, your favorite what is it? movie, uh, man. Bingo? Their bingo card? <laughs> yeah. Come on. Um, yeah, yeah, that and Wings of Desire. i got to get my references in every every episode that I can. Um, but no, there's this lovely tracking shot where it's just him on this horse just, just gently walking and... I was looking at the background. I mean, clearly there was some sort of CG going on there, but it was just so well done. It was so well framed. It looked like a painting. It was it was slow and it was deliberate 
and it was meditative, but at the same time, the frames were so full and there was so much intrigue as to like this part of the story was leading to this next interesting thing and then at moments you get like you said Ryan a fucking giant that kind of is like oh cool or you you meet like the scavenger guy who um you know robs 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 Gawain which I didn't see that coming until he gets ambushed a little bit later and I was like ah that clever little fucker you know so there's little moments like that but then there's also these really like meditative shots there's this 360 degree shot where He's lying down, right? And it when returns it's on to him his decayed first, body. Yeah. It turns to his decayed body and then it comes back and it's it's like that that kind of shot. And then of course a very Malachy shot where it just kinda like goes pans up the trees and into the, 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 the forest canopy above, you know, and like there are these wonderful art house, for lack of a better term, kind of shots and But and what frames. does it mean, Austin? What does it mean? <laughs> I just, I, I want to jump. I want to jump back in with some contributions to the chat. First of all, uh, sorry, I sorry I lost my train of thought earlier. I was looking for uh, Tommy Folderton. He was the uh, listener who uh, left the ego comment that you cited earlier. Uh, a few moments later, uh, Jay Skiv contributed to the chat, and he said something. Uh, he put it all quite succinctly. We should. Uh, we should bring him on the show. He could save everyone an hour of time. He said, if you can't die with honor, you won't live with honor. Um, and uh, there's also a wonderful contribution here from Lion, Ryan Laredo saying, uh, Paganism is the worship of the land. The two parallels are no accident as a commentary on the city and Christianity having a single influence on pagan Britain, even more so with Arthur and his sister. Um, now to come back to uh, the question of like, David Lowry bringing this movie into a more sort of uh, contemporary context. Um, I think that's a, a little bit of what we're sort of nibbling around right now. I think that's of a whole with like his entire filmography in a really weird way. The, this movie, I think you, you can see a direct line. I think the clearest connection is probably between this and a ghost story. But he has this tendency to work within these frameworks of mythology but uh, he brings that sort of humanizing element to it. Ryan, like you said, this movie is, for all intents and purposes, a medieval John Hughes movie. <laughs> like, this is, yeah. this is about this guy's coming of age and learning not to be a cad as much as it is about anything. Whereas in the text, like, he, he's not really fleshed out. He doesn't seem all that human, you know? He does make a, a few mistakes or errors in judgment here and there, but he's not like all that compelling. He's just sort of a, a mythical figure or iconic figure. Um, but if you if you look at his movies going back to, you know, Austin, you mentioned Anthem Body Saints and something like Old Man and the Gun. Those are very much movies about kind of humanizing that trope of the, either the gentleman bandit or the lovers on the run. And all of his movies have this this tendency to take like a springboard either from folklore or mythology or with a ghost story, just the framework of the, the tradition of ghost stories themselves and figuring out a way to uh, draw some humanity out of these characters that have become like very staid or rigid or archetypal within these subgenres. And I do think um, in this movie specifically, you, you do see a lot of uh, a lot of really interesting growth every single challenge along uh, along the way for dev patel you you just you you pull a little bit more humanity out of him and you if not if you don't see him change that drastically you see the will to change forming behind his eyes that he's like he's experiencing the hardships of life for the first time he's being punished for his hubris as he's having to like take shelter on a cliffside in the rain and forage for mushrooms that may or may not cause him to hallucinate those giants walking across the land. Um, and I, I, I think that there's, you know, a lot of that you could say is uh, the intent that David Lowry brings to it. But I also want to give credit to Dev Patel. I think he's phenomenal in this movie. And uh, David Lowry was talking about his, his big influences on this film, one of which was uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc, the, the Carl Theodore Dreyer film, which is a an historical epic rendered almost entirely in close-up. And you really do see that influence, that you have those big, beautiful, trippy vistas that uh, the Ryan Haley's of the world really love. But also when yeah, when he gets into close-up on Dev Patel, you're like, yeah, I'm 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 watching a man go on a journey here. Like you can see something. There's one in particular. There's one in particular that really brought my, my attention to what was going on in terms of the craft of the direction. It was actually early on when Gawain is sitting next to Arthur 
and Dev Patel just holds his eyes on Arthur and does not move for about a minute and a half as Arthur is kind of talking to him about greatness and how he will have his opportunity, right? And Dev Patel literally does not I think he blinks one time and it was actually almost like a perfectly timed blink, whether that was editing or whether that was the performance. Um, it was a perfectly timed blink where it's something that is said that is almost like at this moment, Dev Patel accepts what is said to him, right? And then he just holds the gaze again. And it was also kind of you see the power as well because he's looking up at the king. And as soon as I saw that intimacy, then matched with the wide shot behind of the court, which I guess I watched a little interview with David Lauber. He says it actually was painted. They, they had, couldn't. Yeah, uh, they had some some matte yeah. painting on the edges of the frame. Yeah. Which I thought was really kind of a lovely touch, which I really in, in, enjoy that use of different artistic mediums. So I think um, – and then, of course, you know that, that long shot that I was talking about, that tracking shot, is just this massive, like, fucking Lawrence of Arabia, like, like super wide, right? Like, super fucking wide shot. Um, and you have that, and then you have this Are you thinking of the one palette. where the camera inverts? That as well. That's oh, okay. another one that is absolutely fantastic. There, there's so much wonderful – like directorial flourishes and then there's my favorite edit of the film was when he's sitting next to what's his what's his mistress name is it essel 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 he's talking with essel and she has that bell and she shakes the bell and as she it's on the movement on the hand movement of him shaking the bell it flashes back to her quick shake of the bell and then it goes back to him and i was like there's just this beautiful cross cut right of bringing those two moments together that that things like that i was paying attention to a lot of which again might be like oh these are simple things but they create such a mood and a tone and a feel and it pulls you in so well that it I, I don't know. It, it really is just kind of um, a wonderful testament to him and his craft as as a filmmaker, right? And, he, and seeing him grow, seeing him grow from Ain't Them Body Saints through to Pete's Dragon, now into this. And I didn't see, what is it, The Old Man with a Gun? Old I didn't see it, but I heard about it. It's, yeah, it's I heard good. about it. I didn't see it. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's not my favorite of his films, but uh, like I said, I, I watched it this morning and I, I liked it, but it, it seems a little bit more... Um, you know, it's certainly more accessible, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's, it it feels um, maybe a little bit more slight. There's not as much to chew on there. But it's all it's also based on a true story, and you know it, um, it has some of uh, his his more stylistic fringes kind of uh, cut off. It's you know it's made for more of a broad audience appeal. Um, but to uh, to bring it back to the Giants, I, I wanted to shout out Jay Skiv again, who's just been lighting up the chat. He he had a really thoughtful comment here. Um, uh, great uh, metaphorical reasoning that uh, he, uh, Gawain attempts to stand on the shoulders of giants, but they deny him so he can forge his own path. And there is um, a kind of an interesting parallel with David Lowry talking about uh, the history of his filmmaking, Austin, um, that he he has this kind of, you know, you always hear about filmmakers doing one for me, one for them, that sort of thing. Uh, Pete's Dragon, you can you know uh, one for them yeah you can probably say yeah, that's yeah. one for them although he he uh, clearly project. he clearly cares quite a bit about that material and uh and he holds it well he's doing regard. the new peter pan film too yes he's i think be doing like the new peter, peter and wendy now. or something like that peter and wendy yeah um and i think that that fits within the framework uh like i was talking about before of like finding these sort of fantastic or mythological ideas that he can find a way to kind of subvert or, or contemporize or however you want to put it. Um, but uh, a ghost story was this movie that he kind of famously, when he was working on Pete's dragon was like, you know, I'm, I'm proud of this movie, but I really, I really want to get back to that thing of like my first movie, like St. Nick, where you'd make, you get 12,000 bucks and you and your friends go out and find a house to just shoot in. And he was like, I'm just going to write this movie about a guy in a sheet and it's going to be this weird sort of take on the ghost story. And this was kind of coming from a similar place uh, uh, as, as big as this movie seems. And it certainly is, you know, it, like we were saying before, I mean, it's all up there on the screen. He knocks it out of the park, especially considering how relatively low this budget is. This movie is uh, very much a passion project for him. He said the first script that he ever wrote was an adaptation of uh, St. Percival and the Fisher King. He tried to get it uh, performed at his local community theater in Texas. 
Um, and uh, he was never able to get it on its feet, but he had been harboring this notion for a long time of being able to make a fantasy film or something about Arthurian lore. And that when he was, um, uh, I, I think it was when he was coming out of uh, Old Man and the Gun, he started thinking like trying to get the creative juices flowing and uh, picked up Sir Gawain and the Green Knight just to you know get his head back into a medieval or fantastic mind space. And he was like, well, this is just a book about a guy walking. I could do this for like 15 grand. <laughs> you know, it ended up being <laughs> ended up being 15 million, but it still has that sense of like childhood wonder that you can tell he's been he's been harboring these fantasies of uh, of you know, myth and legend and and I I really like that you you get this kind of ground level fantasy that yes it, it is big and epic at points but at the end of the day it's it's really just about one person's battle with themselves and I you know I, I think it's really really special and uh you know he's a special filmmaker I'm glad that we just have about him. one man walking this is Jess Betancourt the host of DNA ID the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime solving tool how it works how cases are selected why the cases were unsolved for so long and how the justice system is addressing it I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward no nonsense delivery you can find DNA ID on any podcast platform episodes come out weekly on Mondays um, awesome. I can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, you, you had started this by asking me about the last line of the film, and I would like yes. to ask you about the first line of the film, which is when mm. she she throws the water on him and then goes, "Christ is born." Um, mm. Do you think that that's setting us up for you know? Is, is this is this a Jesus story uh, disguised yeah. as a coming of age story disguised as a King Arthur story, a hero's journey, all wrapped in one? burrito yes yeah okay. i do i do think so i think i think i really like thinking of illusions right rather than thinking it is this or it is that like what is this film potentially alluding to and so i absolutely think that gawain is kind of like a, a christ figure some sort of messianic figure who ultimately comes to the point of sacrificing himself at the end despite the the immediate pain that he is anticipating he will receive and this is what i think is so fun about the end I think that he doesn't cut off his head, actually. I think it's just this cheeky, you have sacrificed yourself, kind of like the commenter said about sacrificing the ego. You already have died by putting yourself in a position to allow me to chop off your head, but because you're not immortal, I was, so I kind of fooled you to begin with because I knew that anything you do wasn't actually going to harm me, so whatever, I always had a one-up on you. It's kind of like a a Satan tempting Job sort of thing, right? Is like, I'm going to put you through the hardship. Um, and in the end, you're going to be rewarded ultimately. And I, so I think at the end, he gives him that cheeky look and he runs his thumb across his neck and he says, now off with your head. I think that that's kind of like a wink, wink, nod, nod. You've done it. Well, well, well done, my good boy. Now you can go back and you've saved Camelot because had you not done that, you would not have saved Camelot. So I think he's very much a Jesus figure. And the water and the baptism, that's absolutely a, a John the Baptist. You have Jesus starts his ministry with being baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. A man whose head Gospels. was eventually cut off. A man whose head was eventually cut off. Right. So I absolutely think that that he is um, a Jesus figure. But Jesus doesn't start off, you know, he's always kind of Jesus-like. He's not in brothels, you know, getting <laughs> yeah, drunk. Yeah. You know. But I think this is, this is one of the interesting ways of kind of playing. He's always kind of Jesus-like, yeah. Yeah, he always had his Jesus thing, right? Um, but this is one of the interesting things about, like, different interpretations of theology. You know, I said earlier there are these interpretations um, made famous by a theologian named G.K. Chesterton um, where Jesus literally becomes an atheist on the cross. Not in the sense that we think of it now, like Richard Dawkins, grumpy-faced, I'm going to try to, like, argue with you people all the time because, you know, I think religion is stupid kind of atheist, but much more of, like, he doubts fully. He doubts and there's God, a yeah. term in... Yeah, he doubts God, and he doubts his ministry. And there's a, a term that's used that's the word kenosis, which means an emptying of oneself. This is the Greek term that's used, right? And so the idea is at that moment that, that the, the divinity of Jesus is emptied completely, and what we see is the humanity of Jesus. So a lot of times in these old tales— 
you get these tellings that could be deemed heretical in some ways, but you get these tellings that talk about like different aspects of theology that aren't you know, um, exposited in the religious texts or in the interpretations of those religious texts. And I think that what you get is a real human tale that is kind of saying you too can accede to the level of divinity. And this is a term in, in theology that's called apotheosis, which is an idea that you can become like God, right? Not that you can become like God in the sense of omnipotent and, and all-knowing and stuff like that, but rather in the sense that we are trying to transcend out of our human condition and accede to the levels of transcendent ideas, the ideals of bravery, the ideals of the highest ideals of courage, of truth, of beauty, of justice. We can transcend to those if we pass certain tests. And so I think that's kind of what we could look at this tale as doing, is it's giving us a real human story, but in it you see a man who transcends to the level of divinity, and he ultimately then saves Christendom, or he saves Camelot, by his transcending of the weaknesses of the flesh, right? And, and this Something also like returns gotcha. to the tension of, of kind of uh, paganism versus Christianity, because, of course, this movie and the story starts on Christmas, which is now celebrated as the birth of Christ, but long before that was celebrated as, a, a, you know, a pagan holiday. It was, you know, Yule to Germanic cultures. It That's was right. Saturnalia right. to Roman cultures. Like, it, it's, it, it is one of those things where, like, there is this inherent tension when you start to unpack any of this stuff because, like, once again, the, the cyclical nature of nature itself, like we were saying, hmm. or like I was saying before, that, you know, these things start as celebrations of nature. They get co-opted by religion and now kind of have come back on the other side to like my Jewish cousins celebrate Christmas by eating a ham every year. <laughs> like it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's essentially a secular religion again, or it's, excuse me, a secular holiday again, because everybody celebrates Christmas. Um, and there is, there is a, a like, once again, a, a weird kind of commentary that he's making on this. And I, I think, um, uh you you had mentioned oh um oh oh sorry um i'm i'm crossing the streams again between uh our conversation and the chat um but uh some folks are bringing up the fox austin i wanted to throw that your way yeah. i have some theories on the fox but i'm curious what you and uh, ryan maybe think about that oh and uh, by the way we actually have a a surprise guest today the the fox from the green knight is here Oh, oh whoa. Chaos Who's this? <laughs> oh, little foxy. We just we just adopted That's her so a week cute. ago. She's uh she's clinging oh, to she's us. Nice. Um but uh sorry. Okay, sorry, look, go we're going we're going long, so let let let's have this be the last thing that we say and mm -hmm. fuck email us and then we can address this in like the mailbag section in coming weeks, okay? Ryan, what do you think about the fox? Um, to me, it was just another cool, weird, mystical <laughs> nature thing to add into yeah. the other weird shit. The, the, you got a giant, a talking fox. He's just, he's seeing weird stuff that he doesn't see in normal everyday life because he's losing his innocence as he's coming of age because he's Jesus and he's King Arthur <laughs> and all these references. Do you think, did you, did you think the, like the Von Trier Antichrist thing? Like whenever I see a talking fox, I always think fucking Antichrist. Yeah, I see where your head's at, but no, I didn't. I've, I just okay. assumed that this talking fox was part of this ancient poem that I'm not aware of is where, <laughs> what I thought. I didn't, no, but, you know. actually it's not. That's the, oh, okay. that's well, kind of the weird, the, the weird thing is that um in in the poem, similar to how, like, St. Winifred is never mentioned in the poem, but Holyhead is. There's a brief mention of he walks near Holyhead. The fox is just something that the, the lord in the castle, the Joel Edgerton character, he traps the fox, and on the third day he returns with it. On the first two days he returns with, like, a deer and a boar, respectively. I can't really remember offhand. Um, but it's another one of those things that David Lowry just kind of, like, takes these little signposts that are in the book and expounds on them. And in much the same way that Morgan Le Fay plays a much bigger role in this that is more uh, significantly tied to um, not just Gawain's journey, but his lineage, I believe the, the actor who plays Morgan Le Fay in this is also the voice of the fox. And to me, the implication ah. was that the fox serving as his familiar was the enchantress, uh, his mother, like following along and, and kind of, keeping track of him mm. and and sort of like making sure that he was either 
staying on the right path or by the end of it when she's like okay this has gone too far like you could you could have learned your lesson by now you don't have to go get your head chopped off when she pounces in front of him and is like don't fucking go do this man like enough this is not Mm. worth it so that was kind of my interpretation i know a few folks in the chat um sorry i can't shout them out directly because uh the it's it's just blowing up but uh, a few folks also pointed that out in the uh, the chat as well damn it i wish we could keep talking about this forever but alas my court it is time to bring this conversation to an end alas uh, if you want to if you want to call us and you want to contribute to this please you can call us at 12135348807 that's 12135348807 leave us a voicemail we got a couple voicemails this last week but they were really crackly and we couldn't hear i don't know if that was an issue with our line or your line but please keep trying we want to definitely listen to those voicemails and engage with them but we just we couldn't we couldn't quite hear it so um, definitely try to make sure that you got good reception and then of course we'll check things on our end as well um, if you don't want to call you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co that's movies at wisecrack.co give us your fucking theories on green knight give us all your weird arthurian legend tales and inside scoops and whatever else you know do some deep fucking rabbit hole research and let us know your thoughts your feelings your insight Raymond, where can people find you on the internet before we get out of here? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria, so feel free to stop by and say hello. Sick, Ryan? Find me at Ryan Shorts on thy YouTube. And you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. That's it. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Send Sir us Ryan. that Liverpudlian goodbye, Ryan. <laughs> Fare thee well. From Los Angeles, California, this has been Show Me Thy Meaning. Now off with our heads.